Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com. And by the Aviation Careers Expo 2012, Brisbane, August 25th. Find out more at aviationaustralia.aero slash expo. And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L-39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 91 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Bisher, and sitting over there in the other corner holding up a rather familiar-looking piece of paper, it's Grant McGarren. Grant, what is that piece of paper you're holding up over there? Oh, uh, mate, that would be... Um That'd be the one that says that uh, you're not the only pilot in the podcast anymore. Well, hang on. Baz is not on with us tonight. Let's see. Anthony Crichton Brown's on a little bit later, but uh, no. Uh, Anything you want to share with the audience, mate? Anything you want to share with the audience? That does look very familiar, that piece of paper. Yeah, it does look a little like the diploma on my wall, but it actually says that I'm a uh, certified balloon pilot, mate. Ah, yes. Fantastic news, mate. Fantastic news. As we mentioned in the last episode, you're on your way up to Mildura. So uh, for those of our listeners who've not already heard this story on the Airplane Geeks a couple of weeks ago, tell us all about it. (laughs) Well, mate, what can I say? But uh, this piece of paper and five bucks gets me a beer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, uh, I have completed my uh, balloon license at last. It's been two years in the making, um, partially due to lack of funds at one point and then mostly due to lack of time because I've been flat out working, but finally got the chance to spend a week in Mildura, did my uh, three solo flights. Uh, you've just got to do two hours over two separate days, and it worked out as a couple of point sixes and a point eight, and uh, had a lot of fun, did my solos, and then went and did my check flight. First solo was on the 4th of July, and then another solo on the 5th and 6th, and uh, did the final check flight on uh, Saturday the 7th and uh, aced it it was all just it just all worked right you know um when my instructor said all right it's not just uh, the other person who's in the basket with us that we're kicking out here um actually i'm going to get out as well you go have some fun do your solo and it just felt right it was surprising i was totally surprised i had no idea he was going to do this to me but it felt right and yeah the flying was just great and same with the check flight it was all just natural briefings set up get everything happening get in the air, have a good time with the uh, examiner, do the flight, get them out, do the solo component. It all just worked. It was all natural and really good. A lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. I'm really curious, mate. Uh, you know, we, those of us who've got our pilot's licenses and have had the, the wonderful experience of our first solo, we all remember, uh, you know, what aircraft we did it in and all that sort of stuff. But uh, one of the things I remember when I did my first solo was uh, in, a, in a Cessna 152 was the uh, amazing increase in performance because now there's only one of me in the plane instead of two of us. And uh, I just wonder, how does that equate to balloons? Exactly the same. It climbed so much better. <laughs> I didn't have to put half as much heat in and I was gone off the ground and And uh, there was my instructor and his mate walking along towards the retrieve vehicle on the other side of the field. And next thing I know, I'm 500 feet up and I'm looking around and I'm the only one in the basket. And I have to admit, I went, woohoo! And I think I heard that all the way back here in Melbourne. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, so I put it into a positive climb, made sure my maps were in the right spot, um, everything was laid out, um, opened the uh, bag of the uh, snake candies and had one of them and enjoyed the view for a bit and then got on and flew, uh, came down, enjoyed watching some kangaroos below me. Uh, we were out in the country, so there were a few of them on the fields. And yeah, just really had a great time. Uh, it was all... Knew what I wanted to do, knew where I wanted to be, up high to get some left, down low to get some right, set a goal for where I wanted to park the uh, balloon at the end of my point five, got to point six and I was right where I wanted to be and uh, I landed it, had a beautiful little landing and uh, kept it upright. The others came out, they jumped on, I got out, and they flew while I drove. Oh, fantastic, mate. Well, congratulations, and that's uh, really wonderful news. Now, you and I have known each other for, what, about four years now? About that, mate. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I know that's been a goal of yours to uh, get up and get airborne. Well, both of us, really, <laughs> but uh, particularly for you, and uh, I know that uh, that's been a long time in the making, mate, so congratulations. Thanks, buddy. It's been uh, absolutely awesome, and uh, yeah, look, uh, like that little rant that I had the other episode, um, I don't care how you get altitude, whether it's parachuting, whether it's powered parachuting, gyroplanes, uh, helicopters, whether you're doing it in a uh, in a glider, I don't care. Altitude is what counts, and how you get it is part of the fun. And so, yeah, for me, it's in balloons. One day it'll be in gliders. I want to keep working through other other forms of aviation. But uh, yeah, it's been a goal for a very long time to be able to take an aircraft out and go solo. And uh, mate, I've, I'm doing it in the first way that mankind learned to fly. 1783, the first form of manned aviation was ballooning. And uh, just think of it it's for all those people who think you know pilots looking down on people since 1903. Ha! Balloonatics looking down on people since 1783. Well, there you go. Fantastic, Grant. Well done, mate. Well, uh, let's, we can't let you get too big-headed, mate. We need to get on with the show, but uh, yeah, fantastic. And if people want to hear a more detailed description of how Grant did that, they can go across to uh, australiadesk.net and uh, just scroll down there to uh, episode 205 entitled Ballooning to the Max, and you can hear a very detailed uh, description, even more so than the one Grant just gave about uh, how he went and did that. Yeah, especially my uh, third solo with that uh, interesting bounce land uh, yes, how to bounce a balloon. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, next thing you know, you're 50 feet and climbing. Wait, what? <laughs> okay, another packed episode coming up on uh, Playing Crazy Down Under this week. Uh, in a minute, we're going to uh, play a segment that we recorded a few weeks ago with Baz Sheffers and uh, Anthony Crichton-Brown. This time, we're talking about the ever-increasing prevalence of iPads in the cockpit. Now, uh, we know that a number of the major airlines are uh, bringing that technology into their cockpits, uh, not only here in Australia. In fact, today, as we record this, we read that Qantas is doing exactly that and we're sure uh, you know over time that's going to be the norm for just about all airlines that's my tip anyway but uh, also in GA and not just iPads but uh, other forms of technology as well Baz and Anthony uh, also go into a bit of a Q&A session about some updates in Oz Runways and we know that's uh, not only because Oz Runways is a sponsor here and it's Baz's company but uh, I think just about every pilot I know has it uh, mate even a few balloonatics I know have it and a few more are considering it uh, Baz actually came out and met up with us at Mildura he flew out from Adelaide had a really good time. We put him on his first ever balloon flight and uh, he uh, got some good pointers from people who use it or want to use it in their balloons. Now, we mentioned last week, of course, that uh, Peter Johnson, our European correspondent, has been uh, at the Farnborough Air Show, Farnborough 2012, and he sent us through a report from there with a couple of great interviews. That's in from up here to down there. Number four, we also have an interview with Peter Gibson from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority about the new pilot medicals that are coming in. There's some really good news there, so that's coming up a bit later in the show. 
and uh, we're also going to be talking to the people from Aviation Australia up there at uh, Brisbane, just off the Brisbane airport, about their upcoming Aviation Careers Expo, which is taking place next month. Uh, that's uh, August 2012. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about uh, what it is that uh, Aviation Australia actually do and uh, what our listeners can expect to find if they'll be uh, attending the uh, Aviation Careers Expo. And uh, for those of you that uh, are looking into an, a career in aviation, well, uh, this would be a, a great spot to be, particularly if you're going to be up in Brisbane. And uh, Grant, you put up on our Facebook page something about uh, interviewing, did I read there, Alan Joyce? Yeah, mate, saving the best bit for last. Whoa. Oh, mate. Uh, yeah, hang in there to the end of the episode, folks. I have interviewed Alan Joyce. I kid you not, I was totally gobsmacked when I got the opportunity. I've interviewed Alan Joyce. Jeez, I didn't know you could speak Irish. Well, you are the uh, you are the resident linguist here, Grant. Hey, mate, I'm part Irish, part Scottish by descent. You know, it uh, causes some problems when, the, uh, when we're trying to decide which kind of booze to drink. But, you know, I go for my spuds. I think I'm right for this. Yeah, there you go. No worries. All right, let's kick it off. Let's get into the, uh, the chat about aviation apps uh, with me, Baz, and Anthony Crichton-Brown. It's Baz Sheffers joining us from his office in Adelaide and Anthony Crichton-Brown in Sydney who's chewing on his apple strudel as we speak. How are you guys? I'm pretty good, thank you. Oh, I'm wonderful, thanks Steve, and it's a wonderful apple strudel thanks to my wife who's uh, Austrian. Have you got the same problem as Steve with your wife that she cooks too many nice things? Yes, and she's very good at it and I'm very good at eating it. Well, you know, you want to be careful, mate. You'll end up looking like me. You know, as most people who listen to this show know, I, I started flying back in 1990 and probably stopped for several years from about 1994 or five onwards. And when I was flying, the most fancy thing we had in the cockpit of my aircraft at the time was a North Star Loran. And I'll tell you what, that was a fantastic bit of kit. It, it could tell you where you were going. It had a great database of all the airports in uh, North America, I think, at the time. That aircraft at the time, a Cessna 172, apart from that, was full of steam gauges. Well, of course, we move on now and uh, we find that technology is really catching up to the aviation sector, particularly for GA, but also in the airlines, we see glass cockpits becoming more prevalent. And uh, a lot of discussion over the last few years, of course, surrounds the introduction of the iPad. Now, Baz, of course, with those runways, that works on the iPad and the iPhone. We're seeing this uh, now being pushed into the airlines and uh, more widely into GA. So we might start with you, Anthony. I mean, uh, you're an airline pilot. Do we see these sorts of applications becoming more widespread in the aviation industry? I know that um, some of the airlines in the US are starting to look at bringing iPads into the cockpit, for example, for their checklists. Uh, is that something you're seeing over in this part of the world? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. The A380, all of their onboard documents are only available electronically. They don't carry the paper manuals as far as I know. The And that's coming in to all airliners and all airlines in Australia. There's if, if they haven't already got them, they're looking at them and getting seriously close to them. Lots of advantages. If you've got a paper library on the aircraft, you have to have people in the organisation who is responsible for tracking those documents, making sure they're up to date because any time CASA could come and audit that aircraft and say, show us all your documents and make sure they're up to date and they're the current amendments. And so if you imagine a fleet of you know 150 aircraft, each aircraft might have 10 documents on it and 10 document folders. And that's a lot of work for, for a department, notwithstanding the weight of that uh, those documents on the aircraft and the, and the extra fuel burn that, that it uses to carry that extra weight. And just the convenience, I mean, hauling A4 full scat folders around a flight deck to look up uh, performance information or approach charts, that sort of stuff, it is pretty uh, it is pretty cumbersome when you can put your iPad out and click on whatever application you happen to be using and type in, you know, YSSY and all the Sydney charts come up and then just click and plug and play and there they are. So 
So the short answer is yes, just about every airline is is looking at it if they haven't already implemented it. I believe that Virgin have their training captains trialing it at the moment. Um, Qantas are certainly talking about it very seriously as our Jetstar. And as you'd allude to in the United States, um, Southwest Airlines, Alaskan Airlines, and um, and I believe NetJets have gone gone ahead with the use of an iPad too as their primary means of documented information. And, and just by the by, we're talking about documents here, not a navigation system. We're not talking about using it as a, as a GPS, like an Osram runways type setup. It's it's just a document source. So all your Jefferson documents, charts, approach plates, and um, performance data, that sort of stuff is available on your iPad, which is fantastic. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. When you mentioned the uh, the A380 there as an example, I mean, all the checklists and that, are they part of the, the system that's built into the cockpit or is that a separate device that they can they can pull aside and pull up a checklist as they need it? Checklists, I don't know about, Steve. I'm not an Airbus man. I believe the way they run their checklists is that's integrated into their ECAM, which is their, um, in, in Boeing, we call it ICAS, Engine Indicating and Crew Alerting System. So I think ECAM is something about engine aircraft monitoring system or something along those lines and I believe their checklists come up on their displays that are built into the aircraft um, but it would be more things like calculating speeds and thrust settings for takeoff if we had a, a, a malfunction in the in the aircraft like a minor defect and we had to look up whether we can or can't depart with that minor defect and what implications there are it might be say I don't know something as simple as the right uh, white strobe light doesn't work well we can't just go because we know we don't really need it we have to actually have a, an approved documented um, maintenance uh, relief to go without that and you got to get the book out and look it up and it says yeah white strobe you yeah, don't you know there's two in the aircraft and you don't need them for three days you can keep flying as long as it gets fixed within three flight days or something well that's all documents you got to look up and stuff you've got to do every time you get on the airplane so if you can pull an ipad out and type in white strobe and it goes boom when it goes straight to your reference there it is and you can read it quickly and go you're saving time and um, and also there's an ohns implication as well um Hauling heavy paper documents around the flight deck, they're always stored in really inconvenient locations, you know, behind the seat or right next to the seat and you're twisting and picking things up, which sounds like, you know, that's, that'd be ridiculous. You can't hurt yourself picking up a document. But when you're doing it multiple times a day in one of the uh, less ergonomic environments around, it does make a difference and people do injure themselves hauling documents and bags around the airplanes too. Well, that's certainly one of the things that we hear a lot from airline pilots is the weight that they have to carry in their flight bags when they're coming up onto the flight deck, for example, and having to store those and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and you do hear OHS talk going on about that sort of stuff all the time. I wonder amongst your colleagues in the airline industry in this part of the world, I mean, are they embracing this sort of technology? Is it something that there's a real push for or are there still the traditionalists that say, well, you know, maybe we just want to stick to what we know? Maybe Baz can comment on uh, how many customers he has in the airline industry or airline pilots. It's, it's very hard to say. Yeah, we when we developed those runways, we really uh, thought that it would mostly be used by private pilots uh, and, and GA. Uh, it turns out that we have a, a huge number of airline pilots. Now, the thing about that is it doesn't mean that actually using it for the airline. It might, it might be easier to use it in, uh, in their hotel room at night uh, trying to look up what uh, approach they might be doing tomorrow. But of course, they wouldn't be using it operationally. That said, just like you know, Anthony, many airline pilots go flying lighties on the weekend. And uh, for that kind of flying, uh, they're definitely using Oz Runways as well. So it could well be the case that the GA sector itself could be a good testing ground, even for guys that work, you know, professional pilots that are, you know, out there and having to run checklists every day as, a, as part of their job. You know, GA would be a good place for them to get a feel for it because one of the things I was thinking too is if they implement it, let's say that Airline X 
brings in iPads tomorrow, there's going to have to be, I would think, a considerable amount of training to make sure that everybody is proficient in their use. You would think that some people, particularly younger pilots, I guess, are going to pick that sort of stuff up a lot quicker. But if somebody is used to um, perhaps instinctively reach for an emergency checklist somewhere in the cockpit, should that situation arise? Now we have to, I mean, how much retraining would have to go into training them now to instead reach for the iPad, know exactly in, in a time of stress how to access it, where to poke on the screen and all this sort of stuff. So I, I guess that would be something to think of as well. I'd like to think that if they're able to uh, fly an Airbus or a Boeing, they'll be able to figure out how to use an iPad. I don't think you'll ever see the emergency checklist on an iPad because they are things that you're using when the chips are really down. And I imagine that they would remain as a paper version because it's only, you know, a small document. The emergency checklist is like a notepad. But yeah, for sure, everything else. Yeah, I mean, iPads are pretty straightforward to use. If I can use one, anyone can. <laughs> and all the guys I work with, you know, just about everyone's got one at all age when we've got, you know, pilots up to 60 years old and they, they all happily use them and play with them and, you know, download their emails and surf the internet on them and use Oz runways on them. So uh, yeah, I don't think it's a, like Baz said, you know, if you can find Airbus, you can you can use an, an iPad. Yeah, it, it, we find it differs a lot between people and age really has nothing to do with it. We've got pretty young customers, you know, relatively, this is aviation, but relatively young customers customers that uh, struggle a bit and, and ask for a fair bit of support, uh, whereas uh, you might have a 70-year-old picks it up and goes, this is fantastic, loves it, never asks a question. So it's it's more to do with probably if you can, if you're one of those people who can just uh, clear their mind, don't think of how it used to work before, but go in clean sheet and uh, look at it that way, uh, then you, sh- you shouldn't really struggle. It's just something new, something different. If you're trying to go into it, like this is how I used to flip through my old book of manuals, or this is how my aviation GPS worked, why doesn't it work the same? Uh, then you're going to struggle. And that's really with any piece of technology. Well, I guess one of the other inevitable questions that always gets asked uh, anytime this subject is brought up is, what happens if the battery dies? What happens if it breaks? Would there be some sort of requirement in a professional flying environment to have a, a paper copy as a backup? Is that something that would be looked at? I, I don't know, Anthony, have you heard over in the States where they're implementing iPads, for example, are they still being required to carry paper backups? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, Steve. I imagine that there would be a, a transition period while, the, while they're trialling the iPads that they would have to, um, for sure, because not only would the pilots themselves have to be comfortable with it, so would the airline management and the regulator Everyone would have to be comfortable, and the manufacturer, Boeing or whoever is, you know, that the device is going to be used on. So the short answer is, I think they would carry both initially, and I think over time they would phase out the paper documents and they'd just carry an iPad. I believe that the airlines that are getting them, say in Australia, and I don't know how this works, but they, I'm told that the pilots will be issued an additional battery to the one that's on the iPad. So I'm assuming there's some way you can some sort of external battery you can plug in if all if the chips are down. There is, uh, yeah. There's there's really two things. First of all, most of these commercial operators that are switching to it, uh, they're, they're two pilot operations anyway. So you've already got at least two iPads in the cockpit already. And, you know, they're cheap enough to even put a third uh, somewhere in a side pocket or, or whatever uh, as a backup uh, that fits, that's, that belongs in the airplane. You might have a personal iPad for the pilots and, a, and one that belongs in the airplane. Well, you would think too, Baz. I mean, even my daughter's Hyundai has a, a socket in it where you can plug your iPod or your iPad into you exactly, too much and that's that that's the other thing. There's uh, I'm not sure if there's any 12 volt sockets in a Boeing, uh, the Anthony. Uh, there's actually 110 volt uh, AC power. Oh, of in, course. So you in, could they could put in any any adapter if they wanted to. It's for the um, cleaners. They can plug their vacuum cleaners in. Yeah, but um, that's, that's right. I mean, they're not. We can't. We're not allowed to plug into them because the iPad is not an approved device to be attached to the aircraft. So we're not allowed to plug. You can't plug your iPad or your laptop into it to charge it up in flight. So um, only the passengers in the back can. Do that. Yeah, in the in the business class seats, they can because they're obviously certified and you know on sensitive circuit breakers, it'll pop if they draw too much current. But yeah. having said that, if 
Boeing or the airlines really want to, they can go ahead and get that certified to be used. And I don't think it'll be that hard. But yeah, to answer your question before, there's definitely uh, uh, external power packs uh, that, that are charged up and you plug them into the, the dock port of the iPad or the iPhone and uh, you can get power that way as well. It's actually, um, when you talk about certification and all that sort of stuff, it's actually interesting. Um, it's probably a good segue, actually. I was reading in the latest copy of Flight Safety Australia magazine, the uh, May-June 2012 edition is actually a good article in there called Pad Not Paper. Um, so I, I guess they are certainly looking at it from a, an official standpoint. We see here that um, ICAO, for example, is looking at uh, bringing in four different levels uh, as a concept for functionality. Baz, perhaps you could talk to us a bit about the path to getting it certified. I know you'd be very keen, obviously, to have Osramos certified for more uh, mainstream use than what it is at the moment. I mean, I know you're looking at that. It must be a very arduous path to go through. It is and it isn't. This is, the funny thing is, it's, it's at the moment very much a grey area where, where we stand legally. Because if you read the CARs and the AIP, all they say is that you need to have the maps, charts and documents appropriate to the flight and any foreseeable uh, diversions you're going to do. It doesn't actually say that they need to be on paper. So with that in mind, uh, I don't think uh, anyone could be told off at the moment for just using the iPad. Um, but CASA is working on a clarification of that rule. And that's actually highlighted in this article in uh, Flight Safety uh, for this month, uh, May and, and June edition. I spoke to CASA. Uh, the, this is actually the team that work on the, working on the EFB uh, legislation is, uh, was at NetFly. And, uh, and we, we chatted and I'm really positive because they, they, they love us runways. Everyone in CASA does. And they want to get it. They want to see pilots use it because um, it does make sure that everyone always has up-to-date information. And, and unlike any traditional aviation GPSs that people always warn, you know, not just to follow, we actually have the official maps in, in our GPS application. So you can see the airspace clearly and you can see the, the ground features uh, much more clearly. So that's a really positive thing about this type of application on the iPad. We can just do so much more than traditional GPSs. And now to go back to your question about certification, uh, it'll never be certified as uh, such as, a, as a, any certified GPS is. Uh, for, for one, it's a piece of consumer electronics that hasn't gone through the certification process. And two, there aren't any uh, handheld GPSs that have been certified at all. So the main thing we're hoping for is to be approved. And I'm, I'm guessing this legislation or whatever they put out, I think it's not really new legislation, but rather a clarification of, of the rules and recommendations is going to describe a type of application that wouldn't just be for us runways, but any any of that type of application uh, uh, that meets those uh, those rules would be approved. Yeah, I think there's a legitimate difference between the uh, use of an electronic device to access charts and documents and the use of that same device for a navigation solution. What I mean by that is it's one thing to have your iPad with all your Jefferson documents, your AIP, your URSA, your, your WAC charts and your VTCs even, and you looking at the screen of the iPad as opposed to looking at a bit of paper, there's a difference between that and using that iPad as your primary or sole means of navigation. And I think that's where the legitimate difference is, as Baz is alluding to, you, to use an onboard GPS for IFR navigation, it has to meet lots of stringent certification requirements and it has to have a means of being able to detect if its navigation solution is unreliable and alert the pilot to that because you're using that to position yourself, reference other aircraft and terrain and runways and all sorts of things without any any external visual cues. Um, but to use a VFR as a source of a map or a chart is a different story because if you're navigating VFR, you're navigating by use of your of your map 
and the ground features and, and confirming where you are based on the ground features. And so that's your that's your navigation technique as opposed to solely relying on the piece of electronic device. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's how we see it. And uh, the traditional way we're taught to navigate is to draw a line on a piece of paper and then we go dead reckoning. Well, now, what does dead reckoning do? It gives us a rough idea of where we should be along that line. And knowing that, we look outside and we compare those ground features that we see outside to what's on the map and we confirm that our uh, dead reckoning has put us in the right spot. And if it hasn't, we, we go and find out with the map where we actually are and, and get, get back on track. So the GPS in the iPad, of course, isn't certified and you can't use it as a sole means of navigation. So when you're filing a plan, you can't check that box saying, yes, I've got a GPS. Uh, but what you can do is the GPS thinks or tells you, this is where I think you are on the map. And again, you look at that map, you look outside, you compare it and, and you know uh, whether that's correct or not. And if you just keep doing it all the time, so don't just sit back and, and follow the GPS, GPS and don't look at the ground features at the map, then you're in trouble. But if you constantly follow your own progress by constantly looking at that map, looking outside, see if you're, it still makes sense, then it's no different. And actually, it's going to be a lot more precise than the, that reckoning that's uh, the traditional method of VFR navigation. The distinction here too, of course, is uh, for an airliner, all that sort of um, navigation and electronic navigation functionality is already going to be built into the aircraft. They're not going to need anything supplementary like the GPS functionality, I wouldn't think, but particularly for RA and for GA aircraft, there would be, I guess, a tendency for people now to substitute whether they're allowed to or not to start bringing these devices into the cockpit. There would certainly be an issue there, I think, going on too in the future for training. I mean, they're going to have to be teaching student pilots now to navigate this way as well. Whereas I guess yeah, I guess in an airliner, you'd be more using it for checklists, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's one of the problems with PPL training at the moment, even CPL training, because it really doesn't even cover the use of the certified GPS that might be found in those those aircraft. They don't get to that until uh, they start teaching uh, IFR training. And of course, the reality is that the moment people finish their training, uh, whether it's now with those runways or a few years ago with uh, the traditional uh, VFR handheld aviation GPSs, uh, people would start using them and they didn't really have any training on it. I don't think you need a lot of training, but you do need to be made aware of, of mostly the limitations of it and, and how to use it correctly. I tend to feel that uh, even today with all the technology available that the student pilot should be taught how to navigate via a map, a compass, a watch and a pencil. Absolutely. Um, and if, whether if that map is a, if that map's appearing on an iPad or the map's appearing on a piece of paper, it doesn't really bother me either way. I mean, if I was teaching someone to fly, that's just the way I'd do it. I'd say, well, let's turn the GPS off in your iPad, but you can still use it if you really want to without the GPS on. So you're forced to use a compass and a, and a watch and do one in 60s and stuff. Because once they graduate and they're out there on their own, they're going to be using a GPS. Everyone in the world, I don't know anyone who flies around in a, anything that's flyable with a, with an engine and a wing that doesn't use a GPS of some description. I mean, I've got a single seat pits that's got a whiskey compass and I use my iPhone with Oz Runways and it's fantastic. You know, and like Baz described, I still navigate visually using all the VFR techniques, but the iPhone just sharpens up my position and I can feel more confident that, yeah, the point, the direction I'm pointing is correct and I'm not about 15 miles away. I'm exactly 13.5 miles away, which is fantastic. But I reckon that you can still have to teach the student the basics behind navigating and the and the philosophies behind of DR and then later on they'll naturally without even you saying anything they'll go on to um, on to using the technology. It's really something that goes into the glass cockpit versus steam gauges uh, 
argument that you sort of hear from time to time. I, I, I must admit, the only one time really so far that I've flown something that's fully glass, I was actually quite distracted by it. But then that's because I'm used to flying on uh, on steam gauges. But that might just be showing my age. I actually remember back to uh, when I was doing my instrument rating and thinking back to the Loran. My uh, I used to have the foggles on, but you know I would tend to sneak a quick glance across from time to time to the Loran just to get a, a bit of a backup for my uh, position fix or something like that. If my instructor caught me doing that, he'd pull a circuit breaker out. So you know, you, it really does bring home that you really do need to learn the basics first before moving on to all this whiz bang technology. Yeah, oh, yes, definitely. Sure. And and also uh, another thing you often hear in this discussion is information overload. And uh, I don't really think that's the correct term because information overload is getting so much information you can't make sense of it and you get distracted. Whereas I think that the way people get distracted by glass cockpits, uh, by traditional GPSs and by those runways is not because of information overload, it's just playing with your toys when you should be looking out the window. Well, that just comes down to task prioritization really more than anything else, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You make sure that you know how your equipment works before you go flying. And those runways is, is great. You know, sitting there on your knee or on, on, a, on a yoke mount or wherever you have it. And you glance down every once in a while and yeah, I'm still on the correct course. Yep, progress going good. And you start looking outside again. It's only a problem if you start sticking your head in the cockpit because you're uh, you're playing too much with all the functions that you don't really need to, uh, that you become distracted. And that happens in the airline world too. I mean, we've got two FMCs and all sorts of toys in the cockpit that we can fiddle with. And it's a, it is something that can happen. You can get, you know, you spend too much time heads down, look, not looking at the window, like the old Larson cartoon. What's that mountain goat doing up in these clouds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or uh, the uh, the pilots that were discussing their uh, schedules and overshot their destination by 200 miles. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, or I or more that, tragically, yeah. uh, I think we've all seen the air crash investigation of uh, where the, the captain, the co-pilot and the engineer were all trying to change one light bulb and no one was flying the aircraft and they uh, went into the Everglades. Yeah, and that's, and that's uh, risk with whether it be fiddling with a light bulb or playing with your FMC or you know with your iPad that's a it's a risk that has to be mitigated and that can only be mitigated through training and awareness and and cockpit discipline as well yeah and I guess uh, for me it's you know I, I know Osronway is better than most other people so I know all the function I set it up effortlessly and just look outside the window but that is I always make sure that that's exactly what I'm doing it's all set up my route is in whatever I'm flying uh, it's set up just to, so I can have a quick glance to where I'm at and look out the window and uh, it's just another tool uh, tool in the toolbox and it's definitely not the most important one. Well, how does the old saying go, isn't it? Uh, aviate, navigate, communicate. That really has never changed. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely right, Steve. You're dead right. And, and and that's something that has to always be remembered whether you're using an Oz Runways iPad or you're using an FMC in a, you know, in a 787 or a, you know, an iPhone in a, in a Tiger Moth. Yeah. You, you know, that's the important things are fly the airplane first and then navigate and then and then communicate. So I guess, guys, in summary, as we've discussed all these issues here, I guess, um, would you agree there's a certain aspect of inevitability here? I don't think there's any doubt, is there, that we'll see um, all these electronic devices, whether they're using a, a full moving map GPS solution like Osramways or whether they're just using it for checklists or something in the in the airline flying world. Even if there's people that don't agree with it, I think it's inevitable it's going to come in. Yeah, I think there's very few people that really don't agree with it. There are a few people that probably don't really understand it or maybe they're afraid that people rely on it too much. Uh, but given the option between uh, debt wrecking navigation with a map with uh, lines drawn on it and uh, something like Oz Runways, uh, I know which one of the two is going to be more accurate and, and easier to use. However, you, you do need to make sure that if that uh, that iPad fails, you've got a backup and whether that's a, an iPhone uh, or another iPad or a piece of paper, uh, that's, uh, that's really good. You know, I've, I always fly with 
paper maps uh, uh, myself. They're in my flight bag. I don't take them out, but uh, should I need to, they're, they're there and I, and I can use them. And, uh, you know, even if you've got one that's not uh, entirely up to date, you know, assuming that you are going to be allowed to uh, to use Osronways like applications as your uh, your sole source of your charts and your maps. Then even if you've got a, an, an outdated piece of paper, uh, you know mountains don't move, rivers don't move, towns don't move. Uh, so it's still going to help you out if things fail. Yeah, no, I agree. Everything Bez says. Um, I didn't think I would this afternoon, but here we are. Um, <laughs> we're in complete we agreement. Um, he's dead right. You know, uh, I flew a Cessna one seven two in the weekend, and it was only from Bankstown to Wollongong, so that's a I don't know, twenty minute flight, and I could do it without any maps because I've done it before and. I live in the area but I took my iPad and in my pocket was my iPhone and that was all I had and you know I had a VTC chart stuffed in the bottom of my bag that you know was my emergency but I never had any intention in using it and that was fantastic so thumbs up for Oz Runways because it also meant that I knew exactly where I was in re- reference to the um, Holsworthy military airspace so I could confidently stay out of it and I think that that's where the really big advantage is because it's stopping guys doing the old penetrate control airspace without a clearance type things or penetrate restricted airspace because it's all depicted on the chart and you've got it right there in front of you. Well, that's just funny you should mention that because when we were at NetFly, of course, there were lots of CASA people around and there were also a couple of them that told us that for the first time in years uh, this year or maybe for the first time ever, the uh, airspace incursions are on the way down. Yeah. Uh, now, and, and, you know, correlation does not equal causation, but I can think of something that was released about 10 months ago that uh, that a lot of people have adopted and, and shows their position very accurately on the maps. Yeah, and as a putting my, changing hats as an airline pilot, I can tell you that um, a guy going into controlled airspace, and I had it once where a, a fella was coming um, down from the north into Bankstown as a lane at VFR lane of entry for those who aren't familiar that goes right along the edge of Sydney controlled airspace, and he misread his map or got somehow got a bit out of whack, and he ended up within miles of Sydney Airport with a transponder on, thankfully, so the so the controller could see him, but wasn't on frequency, so they couldn't talk to him, and so we yeah. all got held and diverted, and you know, and because the controller didn't know where he was going. We had to wait, you know, 30 miles away from him just in case he came towards us and it caused a great, you know, a lot of... A lot of um, a great kerfuffle. A, lot of, a great yeah. kerfuffle. A great kerfuffle. It was a great kerfuffle. Yeah. And especially when uh, he's not talking, you know, he's got a transponder, you know, where he is uh, laterally, but uh, as lo- if he hasn't confirmed his altitude, because we all know how uh, uh, temperamental uh, encoders can be, mm. uh, you know, you don't know how, how high he is. Well, maybe we could envision a day, uh, perhaps we could uh, plug the iPad uh, into the cockpit of your Cessna 172 that's all fitted out with um, your ADSB and all the rest and have it all talk to one another. But uh, that might be uh, fantasy land stuff that we talk about on another podcast. Oh, no, it's not fantasy. It's happening already. Yeah, Boeing, Boeing are looking at it. Yeah, there's, uh, there's various people are working on interface boxes where you've got a whole pitostatic system and uh, you've got a, uh, a gyros in it, uh, you've got your engine monitoring in it and all hooks up to the the iPad and uh, uh, you can basically if you're doing a home build you can spend uh thousands on uncertified uh, but you know purpose-built uh, glass panels uh, or you can buy one of these pick up one of these boxes for about 1200 bucks and uh, pick up two iPads for about 700 bucks each and you're done do you have the need the need for speed Jet Ride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, Jet Ride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash pcdu or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jet Ride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. Plan your flight. 
fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways is Australia's most feature packed, cost effective and easy to use electronic flight bag complete with AIP, URSA, DAP East and West, flight planning and much more. You can even submit your flight plan direct into NAPES. With annual subscriptions starting at only $74.99, it's the perfect flying companion whether you rent or own your own aircraft. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways, know where you're going. The 12th Annual Aviation Careers Expo is preparing for takeoff on Saturday, August 25th, and it's bigger and better than ever. This one-day extravaganza is all about aviation careers, training and employment. This is your chance to speak to the experts like Qantas, Chopper Line Flight Training, Oxford Aviation Academy, Swinburne University, Aviation Australia and more. Don't miss a moment of the action. Visit the aircraft display, free flight simulator and seminars. See you on Saturday the 25th of August, located at Aviation Australia, Brisbane International Airport, or search Aviation Careers Expo. Expo. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. Now, can I ask a question? I know we're probably running out of time here, Steve, about Oz Runways because yep. I, think, I think a lot, I mean, just about every pilot in Australia has got it, you know, and, yep. <laughs> I, and I'm pretty sure uh, we're all curious about lots of different features on it. Um, I've noticed when I use it on my, I've got an iPhone 4 and I've got an iPad, the original iPad. I've noticed on the iPhone 4, um, it'll struggle. Like sometimes it'll start up and it'll freeze and the screen will lock. Is that just because the processor can't keep up with the software? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I think it's not that great on the iPhone 4, which I have as well. It's great on the iPad 2 and the iPad 3, even on the iPad 1, although it's it's still, uh, because the iPad 1 has so little memory, uh, it sometimes can uh, can struggle a bit there, shut down, and you, know, you have to uh, hit the Osronos button again and, and it's back. Um, but the iPhone 4, uh, yeah, things could be better, but it is is definitely uh, to do with the the processor is half the speed of the iPhone 4s, and it's also got half the the memory. And the other thing about I noticed on the iPhone is that um oh in fact on both on the iPhone and the iPad is that I had a situation once when I was just playing with it and I didn't have an internet connection and I think the charts must have gone out of date because next time I went to open it it said oh your charts are out of date or well, maybe my subscription expired, one of the two, and it went blank and I couldn't even access my old charts. Yeah, that's unfortunately, that's a uh, contractual thing uh, with our data provider. Uh, we're kind of hoping that once CASA gets around to making some more recommendations, we can actually talk to them and say, look, CASA, what do you think? Um, is it better to have people show them outdated data when they haven't updated in time? Or uh, is it better to not show them at all, which is currently the requirement by a data provider? So that's something that we need to discuss. The trouble with that is, is you might be in the middle of your flight when it when the subscription expires, and then you got nothing. And at least you know, without with having the old ones, you've got something to go by. Even if it came up with like I don't know, some red text across the top says "out of date chart" or something like that, and so it forced the person to acknowledge their charts were out of date. Yeah, that's something we uh, we need to look into. Mm. The only other frustrating part about it is the volume of download you've got to do every subscription, and it seems that it downloads, say, for example, every time the new URSA comes out, it downloads the entire URSA, not just the changes. Yeah, that's because they, uh, for URSA, they give us a completely new PDF of basically the whole book. Um, and the the only difference is for DAPs, because DAPs are only an update. So that's good. Uh, but URSA, it, it's a lot of pages, but it's actually only about 20 megabytes. So it's not a huge amount. What about when you turn it on sometimes at the bottom of my 
phone, a little bar comes up says downloading database, even though I haven't checked to download. Is, is that like, like, you know, intermediate updates or something, is it? So there's the database, uh, which is actually a little database file. Uh, that's the index to all the documents and all the maps and all the airfields and waypoints. Uh, so that can change mid-cycle. And usually it does because when the new cycle becomes available to us a couple of weeks before uh, it it's, it's goes live, we update the database to have that cycle, the information for it in it. And so it automatically downloads a uh, that database file. How hard is it to change features in the app? Like, for example, if you get a set, uh, someone that says, "Oh, it would be really good if you did X, Y, Z." I think I wrote I wrote on your Facebook wall, which you also, yep. or maybe your partner responded to about changing the size of the text on the iPhones to make free up a bit more screen usage. Yeah, is that a big, Neil, Neil responded to that. Uh, I don't think this one was a particularly big one. Uh, Neil did that one. I didn't have any uh, any input into that one, but uh, yeah, Neil changed made it available to change the size. Uh, some things are harder than others. We're always we've got a huge list of things we want to add and things we want to change. Uh, so we're always and we're always adding more to that. Um, and it's it is a big job. I mean, we we're there's three of us now, and I'd say we've got two full time jobs between three people and a lot of that's development there's support there's uh marketing uh there's just the fact that you're running a business because it, it is a business it's not some hobby project that's how all these things started but uh, the moment we launched 2.0 it was a uh, was a business and uh, uh which is great because it means we can we can actually dedicate the time to do these things and uh we don't have to you know, work other jobs, although you know some of us do, uh, just simply because uh, because we still have to. We've got other obligations, but we can support the users. And, and you know, you know, if you buy us runways, that there's a company behind it that uh, that is profitable and uh, will be there years years from now. Can you tell me a little bit about two things? One is the terrain database, and secondly, um, the possibility of using it internationally. Okay, well, we we've got one international user. Um, <laughs> He actually, he flew a, um, a Nomad. He was ferrying a Nomad from Auckland to, uh, I reckon actually it must have been Gippsland that he ferried it to. And the moment he left Auckland, he got those runways up. And of course, the ERC High Tasman, I think it's called. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that goes all the way to Auckland. So he was following his progress with those runways from Auckland all the way to uh, Australia, which was great. Uh, using it internationally, there's a, we're working on it actually. Because, of course, it's a great way to expand our business, but we have to go country by country. There's a few apps out there that say we support the entire world, but when it comes down to it, they've got uh, probably have waypoint data that is pretty old. Uh, they haven't got actual maps. They they've might have some schematic uh, things, and we want to do it right. So we're currently working on a few uh, options where we're trying to license the, the official data. But believe it or not, Australia is actually turns out to be one of the more progressive ones in in licensing this, which uh, people might think is odd. But uh, uh, our services has been uh, has been pretty good to us, and uh, other countries are just taking more time. But we we definitely want to do that. And what about the terrain feature? I noticed that there's a, a button somewhere now you can turn terrain on, but I've never quite figured out how to make it work or what it does. Okay, yeah, terrain in version two point seven uh, really shows you the terrain on a planned leg. So you, uh, first of all, what you need to do is you need to download the actual terrain for the region you're flying in. Uh, so you need to go to the downloads and there's a more button and you can select which terrain you want to download. It's a, it's a very high precision uh, database, very fine detail. And that was our first uh, terrain implementation. But in 2.8, uh, we're going to take that to the next level and you're, you're going to have basically a full terrain side view as, as you might have on other GPSs that, that support terrain. 
and it will, it will just show you what's ahead of the aircraft at all times. I've got a funny feeling that terrain database, because it's the new, like what you said, high definition terrain database, and a lot of the airliners are going to get it. That was a, sh- a whole shuttle mission was dedicated where the shuttle orbited the Earth on every plane, on every axis of the Earth, and used its high definition radar to take a database picture of the whole Earth. Well, we are getting our data from NASA, so it, it could well be that database, yes. And it, yeah. it, we, I've noticed it, it is very precise everywhere I'm flying. Yeah, the airline is going to be looking at getting it for, um, uh, there has been accidents in the past where pilots have misset the Q&H in IMC and then flown into terrain, not in so much in Australia, but around the world. And so they want to have a system where the radio altimeter can compare itself against the pressure altimeter to make sure the correct Q&H is set, but it has to have a very accurate terrain database to know what yeah. the terrain elevation is below it. Yeah, and uh, well, we've got uh, we've got a very accurate uh, height above ground display now in Ozonways, and there'll be more terrain features coming Well, it's uh, fascinating, guys. I reckon we could go on talking about this for several more hours, but we might have to leave it there and uh, come back and have a chat about it another time. Baz, uh, you're going to stick around with us for another segment uh, a bit later on in the show. And uh, Anthony, well, I better let you get back to that apple strudel, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. See ya. to from up here to down there or is it down there to up here anyway i'm peter johnson and this is my segment with a european perspective i recently attended the farnborough air and trade show and saw some of the folks on the team australia stand wondering what these guys from down there were doing up here i wandered over to have a chat i got to speak to mark shearer who's managing director of fairer engineering but first, we got to speak to Mark McNamara from Gips Aero. I'm with Mark McNamara. I'm on the Team Australia stand at Farnborough. And you're here with Gips Aero. Can you tell us why you're here? You're a long way from home. Yes, thanks, Peter. Appreciate the time to talk to you today. Um, Gibbs Aero is here this week to uh, obviously talk to potential clients about our aircraft and uh, see if we can um, develop those opportunities, but also to talk with potential partners, yeah. uh, both in technology and distribution. Right, okay. Yeah. And do you have any partners uh, in uh, terms of distribution in this part of the world? or We, we do have a, a dealer in based in the UK, right, and okay. we are currently talking with a number of organisations about having a, a broader network across Western and Eastern Europe. Yeah, and uh, we've learned from Stephen Grant about some of your new products coming online. What are the products that you're looking to bring um, to Europe? Well, we've been uh, very successful selling the the air van into the skydive market here in in Europe. Yeah. And we've got the GA10 coming to market very soon. Yeah. And that's a turboprop, essentially a turboprop variant of the GA8, slightly longer. Yeah, yeah. And And that's only recently uh, been produced, hasn't it? Has it gone into manufacturing First flight in May this year went really well. And we're now working through the certification program with both CASA and the FAA as the two... Um, first uh, certification areas yeah and then and then that'll follow up with the EASA right and what are the differences between the 8 and the 10 essentially the 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 engine is different we've got a 450 horsepower 
Rolls-Royce engine. Yeah, and, glad and to hear front. that. Yeah, <laughs> great product and uh, right. really great part, partner to have it on board, actually. Excellent. And they're here today as well. They are, yes, yes. Uh, so the, uh, higher horsepower, yeah. and then it's been stretched slightly to add two more seats. Right, and, and is that looking to the same sort of market, or are you starting to look at other opportunities, possibly passenger transport, that sort of thing, and being a bigger vehicle? Yeah, well, we, we already do passenger transport with the yeah. GA8. I think the the markets will be very similar. Yeah, we've done a little uh, exercise to look at on what in what sort of uh, circumstances the GA10 will be yeah. uh, a better yeah. a better aircraft than the GA8 and, yeah. and vice versa. So that's been a really interesting exercise to go through. Right. I think. Uh, GA10 will be driven in some respects by the the fuel availability. Yeah. There are some regions around the world where Avgas is not available or it's very expensive. Sure. Yeah. And and for those places, GA10 is clearly the better product. Right. Okay. And I'm not aware of any um, GA8s or GA10s in this part of the world. Are there any up here yet? GA8s. Yeah. 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 We've got. Uh, oh. I couldn't tell you exactly how many, but we've got a number of skydive clubs who are using right, the GA8 okay. today, and they love it. You know, yeah. we, we get a lot of good feedback from Europe. Right. Uh, there are a couple of other organisations. There's a place called Hoogleggers in the Netherlands, right. and and they use it to provide a a service to. Uh, children who are ill yeah. to give them right, the joy okay. of flight and experience Great. Uh, the joy of flight. So. And how do you support um, the aircraft um, in this part of the world being so far from, from the home base? Well we've got a great dealer based in the UK who yeah. does uh, both parts provision but also some technical support for the, those clients. Yeah. The aircraft itself is uh, very easy to maintain. It's been designed to be so. Yeah. And a lot of the parts that one would re- require for a maintenance type of operation are yeah. freely available at, at any de- uh, right. parts okay. So there's a lot of common parts on Yeah, there. yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's excellent stuff. And so to today and, and Farnborough, we're in the trade week yeah. uh, before it gets even crazier at the weekend. Um, how's it been for you? It's been very good, very yeah. good. We've had a lot of really good discussions with yeah. partners, uh, a couple of clients that have uh, expressed a lot of interest in right. uh, our aircraft. So not letting on any secrets, but... I can't, uh, I can't. <laughs> not, not letting on any secrets, but um, is trade going well for you? Yeah, That's the, the most important thing. Absolutely. The, the focus here for us is more in the defence area yeah. and law enforcement, more, more so in defence. And, yeah. and so that's where the GA10 and GA18 are going to be more suited. Yeah. And uh, given those aircraft aren't in production today, yeah. we're really just getting the base uh, for uh, prepared yeah. so that uh, we can hit that market really strongly. Okay. And we don't want to see you every two years. We want to see you more frequently up here. What are the plans for uh, the future for this part of the world? Well, we'll be increasing our distribution network, as yeah. I said earlier. And... Uh, so we're running some workshops uh, next week right. with a number of dealers that have okay. expressed interest in being part of our network. We also uh, want to strengthen our um, spare parts supply. Yeah. Uh, whilst there are a lot of parts that are available uh, at any generic sort of store, yeah. uh, we want to make sure that we can deliver uh, parts, air van unique parts, 
within 24 hours to all of our customers. So okay, okay, that's, that's another quite a powerful, uh, powerful service. Well, we've done a lot of um, surveys and we've yeah. spoken to a lot of operators, and this is the kind of service they expect. Right, so, okay. um, so, so it's the yardstick now rather than differentiator. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. And right, okay. um, yeah, there's a lot of organisations, uh, logistics companies that yeah. pride. That's the kind of service that they yeah. uh, benchmarking, and and we need to be there as well. Right. Okay. And for uh, some of our European-based listeners, how can they find out a bit more about uh, Gipsero? Well, we've got a new website. Great that you're asking. We've got a new website being launched uh, this Friday, which uh, is going to be uh, provide a lot more information about the aircraft and what yeah. we've got already. And uh, so I encourage everyone to go to our website www.kipsero.com and read about our aircraft, uh, read some stories about our existing operators who yeah. are, we call them airvan legends and okay, okay. Uh, we've got a, a number of stories already uh, up there on the website so yeah. Well Mark it's absolutely uh, wonderful to have you here at Farnborough, um, all the very best for the rest of the trade week, thank you very much. Thanks Peter, really appreciate your time, cheers. So, I'm on the Team Australia stand with Mark Scherer from FERA. And can you tell us a little bit about the organisation? It's not a name I'm familiar with. Yeah, FERA produces um, for different platforms mechanical sub-assemblies, like for the F-35 we produce the Amy weapon adapters for the whole right. fleet. Right. For Boeing we produce for the F-18 programs all the rudder pedals. Yeah. Um, and we produce for, um, say, the Tiger for Eurocopter, the pilot controls, which we basically manufacture all the parts. They're heat-treated, surface-treated, uh, then we basically build yeah. them all together, test them, so and quality engineering that's correct yeah. and also a relatively high added value rather than just components sure. full subsystems right okay and where are you based we are based in brisbane we've got a plant in brisbane but we also have a plant in asia um, yeah. we also have uh, facilities in the states so we basically service some of our programs very close to the customer say in seattle yeah we got a warehouse facility there where we ship our components so the customer actually can call the parts up and has it there within yeah. uh, a couple of days. Okay, and what are you doing here in the UK at Farnborough? Well, Farnborough, obviously, everybody from the industry is coming here to catch up what the new programs are, to um, promote any new technology. And we found that actually being in Australia, we have to make sure that we continually innovate and offer the customers some new services, some new advanced technology, etc. One of the items which is very important for us, Australia has a lot of titanium ore, 80% of the titanium ore comes from Australia. And what we're trying to do is work with new technologies to get actually cost down for the customer in titanium. So there's some new processes which CSIRO in Australia is developing yeah. and we're trying to actually keep the OEMs, Boeing, Airbus updated so they can use this new technology to drive their costs down. Yeah. And so has Farnborough 2012 been successful for you? It's certainly busy here. Yeah, no, extremely successful. So we had yeah. some very good meetings and we will see a lot of new business opportunities coming out of meeting here with the right teams from the OEMs. Right, okay, excellent stuff. And where can we find out more about um, you and your products? Um, probably the easiest is just go on the web, www.fera.com.au. 
and we have a, a pretty extensive website. So, um, yeah. Excellent, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. So, I hope you liked from up here to down there, or is it down there to up here? Anyway, my name's Peter Johnson, and if you want to find out more about our work, see us on facebook.com slash xtpmedia. Or if you're really crazy enough to want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Nascot Hornet. Okay, joining us on the line from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority is their Manager of Corporate Communications, Peter Gibson. Peter, welcome back to the show. G'day, good to be here. Gee, some big changes here in the uh, the way they're going to uh, set up pilot medicals here in Australia and perhaps a step forward uh, towards a recreational pilot licence. Is that what they're looking at? Well, yeah, I mean, that's yet to come, of course, but this first very important step is um, simplifying and uh, making uh, it cheaper, really, the whole process of uh, getting a, a medical if you're only flying in uh, private aircraft um, for private purposes. So, yeah, we're happy with this outcome. Uh, certainly, there seems to be a lot of support for it. The feedback we've had both while we were developing the proposal and now it's been announced has been very, very positive. If we could perhaps just talk about the genesis of this idea, you said there's been a lot of support for it, but was there support within the actual GA sector or was it more coming from organisations such as RAOs? Uh, no, there was support in the GA sector as well. I mean, we've been talking about this on and off. For, for really the best part of the last 10 years um, with people like AOPA and uh, all sorts of other individuals and uh, organisations. So it wasn't just the RAOs people, but um, there was seen to be a number of difficulties over the years that people couldn't quite get their head around how you could use the motor vehicle medical standard as the basis for an aviation medical standard. But um, look, you know, over the last couple of years, we've worked our way through all those issues. And of course, uh, we've now got it in place. So can we talk about some of the specifics about how this will work? We're talking about basically having a same medical standard, as you said, to drive a car, as would be pretty standard across Australia these days. So what is the process now? Yeah, well, that's right. The medical standard is based upon the um, Australian unconditional driver's license medical standard. That's the basis for it, but then there are some additional uh, considerations we've put on top of that to reflect the obvious different nature of uh, aviation operations from driving a motor vehicle. And there are things such as uh, there are additional medical requirements covering things such as cancer, heart failure, head injuries, epilepsy, musculoskeletal disorders, things that would mean that you would be at higher risk if you were uh, uh, operating an aircraft. So the GP who does the assessment for your new medical will be looking at the basic unconditional driver's license medical but with the additional information from CASA about these other medical areas that uh, he or she, the doctor, will need to take into account. How does that work for the GPs? Do, do they know about this? Do we take a brochure to them or are you informing them? How does that work? Yeah, well, the, um, there is information that's right. When you go and get the form that you'll need to complete uh, on off our website to apply for this recreational medical, that includes information that you'll take to your GP. So you'll take that information to your GP. There's also a, a link there to our website as well if the GP wants to go and have a, have a look at more. GPs are very aware, obviously, of the unconditional driver's license medical standards, so they, they know about that already. But the additional information they've got to look at, of course, is if there are any of these other conditions that come into play, they've got to make an assessment on that. So, uh, yeah, you'll take that information along to them. And in the uh, current medical, of course, the uh, DAMI will uh, send the forms back to CASA for uh, review, and then you get your medical. 
uh, in the new system, do, does the GP just give you the signed form back home and you submit it to CASA? Yeah, that's exactly right. To make it easier and simpler, you simply take along the uh, relevant uh, form off our website and uh, give that to the GP. The GP does the assessment, signs off on that. You then just lodge that, once again electronically, just email that back to us and then we will give you an acknowledgement of that. And once you've got that acknowledgement of that, the uh, new recreational uh, medical certificate is in place and valid. That's all you have to do. So very simple process. And one of the advantages, I think, with this is that there's uh, quite a significant cost saving for pilots uh, who take this option. Well, that's right. I mean, A, you're not going to have to find a dami, uh And, you know, depending on where you live, that may or may not be a challenge. And B, it's only uh, the, the cost of, uh, of a GP visit. And particularly if you've got your own GP and you can use them, it's even going to be simpler because your GP will know your medical history anyway. Um, uh, it's not going to be a big deal. Now, there are trade-offs for this, of course. So it doesn't mean that if uh, a pilot holds one of these uh, medical certificates, there are some restrictions, such as restricted to aircrafts weighing less than 1,500 kilos and uh, must operate at less than 10,000 feet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is how we got to the position of being able to get the recreational medical in place, that we needed to put some safety caveats around it, if you like, to mitigate uh, any particular risks that might be being created by moving from the old Class 2 medical to uh, the recreational medical. So as you say, that's things like single-engine piston, uh, less than 1,500 kilos maximum takeoff weight, below 10,000 feet in uh, VFR, only one passenger, and that passenger needs to be briefed on the medical certificate that the pilot holds, and uh, no aerobatics as well. But apart from those restrictions, you can fly in controlled airspace, uh, you can fly over built-up areas, basically, you know, fly uh, normally as long as you uh, meet those uh, caveats that are put on it. Yeah, to me it sounds very similar to the, uh, basically what Orioles has now, except that, of course, uh, with a PPO, you can also fly in controlled airspace, which is also true in, in Orioles aircraft anyway. So to me, as a pilot, uh, I can see a lot of people, uh, you know, will go for this, especially people getting older uh, that, you know, fly to clubs. 172 but don't necessarily want to put their entire family in there but just go fly alone or with a mate and uh, I reckon that's a really good fit for that. Yeah well that's right I mean that, the, the, the sort of circumstances you describe absolutely perfect now obviously if you want to take the whole family then you've got to go back to the old uh, class 2 medical but um, if you've just got uh, a mate or one family member who you brief and make sure they're aware of the, the situation then away you go and, uh, and really the other restrictions for those sorts of operations probably aren't going to uh, greatly impede anybody. Uh, that's the sort of way they'd be operating now anyway. Interestingly here too, Peter, I noticed that this is available not only to people with uh, private pilot's licences, but uh, should they choose, uh, CPL and ATPL holders can hold this certificate as well, provided they're only conducting private operations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, all the way up from student pilot licence right up to ATPL, uh, if you're only doing private ops, you can uh, you can use the uh, recreational medical. So, um, yeah, we certainly haven't re- restricted it just to uh, PPLs, no. And uh, just going through some of the other stipulations here, I noticed that there's an age limit of 65. If you're over 65, you have to renew it every 12 months. But if you're under 65, uh, provided you meet all the other standards, uh, two years is the uh, the period for renewal? Yeah, that's right. And I think uh, most people would understand that uh, as we all age, the uh, medical issues that need to be assessed uh, become, you know, that comes around more more frequently. So it's a logical and sensible thing to do to get that assessment done uh, every 12 months rather than two years. So uh, that's why that provision's in there, as I say, pretty much common sense. But uh, yeah, beyond that, it uh, really is a pretty streamlined process that uh, I think once people get onto the website, it's all explained there, the forms are there to, to download, uh, and, and away you go, toddle off to your doctor and get it done. Just looking uh, further down this press release here from uh, John McCormick, uh, it says here that it needs to go through the necessary, and I quote, machinery of government processes. When is 
is this change looking at coming in or actually has it come in already? No, it actually has now. Look, when that press release was put out, there was, unfortunately, we wanted to, we wanted to get out and announce it, but uh, unfortunately uh, there was a, a small hiccup in uh, what we've called machinery of government, uh, which meant the exemption wasn't actually enforced at that particular date. Uh, it is now. It's there. It's on our website. Uh, there's a uh, little uh, box on the right-hand side of the front page of the Castle website that will link you to it, and uh, just click on that and away you go. Now, this has been seen from uh, most of the listeners from our show that I've spoken to. Uh, it seems to be uh, quite well received and, and widely seen as a step towards uh, perhaps uh, greater integration. Is that a goal over time, perhaps bringing uh, some of the various sectors of, of aviation a bit closer together? Is, is that a, a more long-term goal, would you say? Well, certainly, look, there's a lot of discussion about that, uh, both inside CASA and outside CASA. And, uh, I mean, the, the thing we really want to do is uh, keep the simple end of aviation as simple as we possibly can and perhaps that goal has been lost a bit in the past. Now this is a step to recapturing that goal uh, and certainly we'll keep working uh, on those sorts of issues. The General Aviation Task Force that uh, Peter John, uh, the member of CASA heads up and has been around the countryside talking to all sorts of people over the last uh, six months or more, they'll continue on that sort of work identifying issues within the general aviation sector where we can make improvements to the way both we operate and the GA sector operates with the goal of obviously keeping things as simple as possible and as affordable as possible but of course at the same time we must maintain the appropriate safety standards. We can't trade off safety for uh, cost or simplicity. Absolutely, although I do compliment CASA in this case because uh, cost is a, a very, very common theme when it comes to aviation these days. So uh, as you say, safety has to be maintained and we can all appreciate that as pilots. But you know, this cost saving here, this is a very positive thing in my view. Peter, I wonder if we could just, uh, speaking of actually uh, costs and uh, that sort of stuff when it comes to CASA, I noticed this week as we got our copy of your uh, excellent uh, publication, Flight Safety Australia, that uh, this is the last dead tree version. It is, which um, I'm sure many people will be sad about, um, to some degree myself included. Uh, but we all know the future of, uh, of most paper-based publications is uh, either moving to exclusively online or more online and less on paper. So everyone's biting this bullet. Um, we've bid it in this case and said, no, we're going to go online. Obviously, there will be some cost savings for that. Now, that's money we can spend in uh, enhancing the online product, uh, going into multimedia, video, interactive stuff. Uh, now, that's not all there yet, but the team that put together Flight Safety Australia are working on that as we speak, and will continue to do so. So, yeah, look, you know, it's a bit like Fairfax and News Limited, you know, the big publishers of the newspapers around the country are uh, all doing and talking about the same thing. Uh, we faced the same decision, and we decided that uh, really the future of Flight Safety Australia will be more effective as a safety education tool online, and there's lots more things we can do with it, and uh, we'll uh, be bringing those improvements to everybody uh, over the coming months and years. I know the Department of Defence, uh, the Air Force, for example, puts out a publication in that format, uh, similar sort of e-publishing format that you can read in your PC. Do you think uh, that CASA might look at you know, making perhaps an iPad version or an iPad app, uh, as, as you say, as Fairfax and News Limited are doing? Yeah, no, yeah that's ab- absolutely what uh, what the team are doing right now. They're looking at all those uh, sorts of issues about apps and, and making it viewable in the, in the various formats. So, yeah, the version, the online version that you see of Flight Safety Australia today will not be the one that uh, we'll be looking at uh, into the future. It'll get better, more flexible, um, a greater use of multimedia, all the rest of it, and yeah, viewable across lots of different platforms. So uh, yeah, no one should think that what we've got today online is what you're stuck with. Today is version one online, and there's going to be many improved versions to come. And are you uh, going to do it uh, every two months?
once again, or is it going to be more flexible with a website where whenever there's an interesting new article ready to go, just put it up? Yeah, well, I was talking to uh, Margot and Archbank, the editor, about that, Tony, last week, and look, final decisions haven't been made, but yeah, that's what I, I said to Margot. I said, well, you wouldn't have to wait for every two months, would you? You could do things whenever you want. You you know, each time you've got something new or once a week or whatever you choose. So, look, no final decisions on that, but yeah, I think that's the way. It's not, uh, I think it'll become a far more flexible publication online than it, than it currently is. The key is going to be getting the balance right to keep the important safety messages there and make them accessible to people while obviously uh, taking advantage of uh, all the things that you can do online that you can't do on uh, paper. Now, uh, Flight Safety Australia is a publication that's issued to everybody in Australia who has an aviation record reference number and of course uh, Casserole has our uh, current mailing addresses uh, but it's very important now that people who want to keep up with the Flight Safety Magazine going forward get onto the CASA website Peter and uh, make sure that uh, they have their online details updated, their email address and such like. Yeah it is, it's absolutely critical and not just for Flight Safety Australia but really you know, whenever we sit down now and we say hey we want to talk to a particular group whether it be pilots, whether it be lanies, uh, air traffic controllers, whoever it might be, the first thing we say is okay well we'll send them an email of some description usually with a link to some material on the website. Now, at the moment, the quality of our email data, our email addresses we hold for everybody out there is not bad, but you wouldn't say it's perfect. So you're quite right. We really, really do need everybody to get onto the CASA website, go to the self-service portal, get in there and look up your details and make sure we've got the right email address for you. And of course, as you change, move jobs, um, move locations, change your internet service providers, whatever it might be, please just remember to get on and, uh, and update your uh, email address because uh, it's... It, Flight Safety Australia obviously will need it to be able to alert you to new additions that have come out and, and whatever else we're doing with it, but also for all sorts of other important safety information that we want to pump out there. Clearly the easiest and simplest and cheapest way of getting to everyone is via email, uh, but that relies on uh, everyone else to make sure that their details are correct. Okay, and of course uh, we would encourage all of our listeners to get across to the CASA website, that's casa.gov.au slash change, and uh, just to make sure that all your details are, are updated there. Peter, uh, some wonderful information we really appreciate it. Peter Gibson is the Manager of Corporate Communications for the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. As I mentioned, you can find them at casa.gov.au and you can also follow them on Twitter at Casa Briefing. Uh, Peter, thanks very much for uh, coming back and uh, spending some time with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Hi, this is Max Flight. Besides producing the Airplane Geeks podcast, I run the 30,000 Feet Aviation Directory. If you have a look at the Aviation Podcast page, you'll find links to literally dozens of aviation podcasts. Go have a look and listen to a few. Then come back here and get the real deal at Plane Crazy Down Under. Hi, I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, from the Pilot's Journey podcast. And I'm Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, inviting you to join us for the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, proficiency, and most of all, enjoying the journey. You can find us in iTunes or at pilotsjourneypodcast.com. And don't forget to enjoy the journey. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com.
Saturday, 25th of August, 2012, up there at uh, Brisbane will be the uh, 12th uh, Annual Aviation Careers Expo. It's being held by Aviation Australia, and uh, we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about it just to uh, talk about uh, the expo itself and the company behind it. So uh, joining us on the line from Brisbane is Andrew Rankin, Steve McCann, and Jennifer Palmer. How are we going, guys? Great. Good, thanks. Good to be here, Steve. Well, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. And uh, before we go into the expo, as I said, we might uh, have a bit of a chat about uh, Aviation Australia and uh, find out who the company is behind the expo. So can you give us a bit of a background as to uh, what the company does and how it uh, how it all kicked off for you? Aviation Australia was set up in 2001 by the, the Queensland government to uh, support the aviation industry in Queensland. And the government recognised there was a little bit of a gap in some of the aviation training, particularly around uh, engineer training. And as part of a strategic initiative by the government to try and attract the aviation industry and grow the aviation industry uh, in Queensland, uh, the decision was made to set up Aviation Australia to specialise in maintenance engineer training for predominantly the airlines, but for the entire aviation industry. Uh, Since that time, we've been uh, graduating engineers um, over the years mainly for Queensland but internationally and the rest of Australia and we've also uh, developed an international program and an IASA certification program where we can actually uh, train engineers to the global IASA standard of, of training or the local CASA uh, Civil Aviation Safety Authority standard. Well that's that's very topical at the moment isn't it because there's a lot of changes going on with IASA at the moment particularly with uh, regard to uh, pilot training standards but is that transferring across to engineering standards as well? Yeah absolutely and, and what we found is it was a very good strategic decision by the company to move into the EASA standard and uh, at the time there was some talk about um, EASA becoming the global standard for maintenance training um, but CASA had not actually uh, decided to uh, to change uh, to the EASA standard but since that time CASA has now adopted the EASA the, the standards for training and, and we were well positioned to not only uh, deliver the training once that change happened but also to assist industry transitioning from the former uh, CASA regulations to the new EASA based regulations for maintenance training. And how would that sit with uh, when it comes to uh, training p- perhaps A&P mechanics for uh, for the US is, is, is that sort of stuff uh, carry over for them as well and do you get many uh, inquiries from the US? We, we don't really the, the, the U.S. is uh, pretty well uh, supported for training for their own standards by the FAA and there is a reasonable difference now between the two systems uh, and most of our international students come from Asia or the Middle East. How have you found, uh, like a lot of stuff that's been in the news recently is uh, Qantas talking about uh, closing down engineering in, and reducing scope in Melbourne and, uh, and also in Sydney. Uh, how are you finding that's affecting the trainees? Uh, are you, you've Obviously, they've You've got Virgin Australia bringing more people local. They're talking about bringing more maintenance back into Australia. Uh, have you seen that creating much of an impact on your market? Not really. We also have the, the heavy maintenance in Brisbane will actually expand as part of that Qantas uh, change, which is good for us, I think. But it's quite a long lead time from someone doing the training to actually becoming licensed and, and getting to that mature state of a, uh, a licensed aircraft maintenance engineer. So, yes, there's changes every year, but... Our pipeline of, of um, students and uh, coming out of our system doesn't vary a lot and our record of actually getting employment for those students is, is, has always been pretty good, even with the boom and bust time. So we, on our surveys, we get um, employment of our graduates somewhere in the order of 90 to 95% uh, most years and probably average overall around the 85% mark. We have, actually have an employment services part of our business where assisting the, the graduates with uh, interview techniques and preparing resumes, where the growth uh, opportunities are in the, in the marketplace. 
we also actually uh, employ some uh, students ourselves and offer them as a uh, under the group training concept where they'll actually work as a work with Aviation Australia as an apprentice but placed out into industry. As well as that, we actually employ our own apprentices. So we have four apprentices who, uh, who work in our hangar here helping to maintain uh, our equipment over here. We have quite a few live aircraft in our hangar and we actually have a, uh, an operating approved CASA uh, maintenance facility which we use for training and um, funnily enough Steve is actually one of those apprentices. That's correct yes I uh, I did the uh, structures component last year. Okay so that's airframes and so on? Correct. And what kind of uh, items and elements did you work on? Well basically the the, uh, the course uh, I came into Aviation Australia in February and the course completed uh, uh, mid-December so it was full time and uh, the theory components as well as the practical taskings that uh, form the course over those uh, 10 months involved you know, maths, physics, electrical uh, subjects, tooling, you know, everything that you require to be uh, basically uh, a sheedy in aviation. So you're focusing mostly on the metal side of things or did you do much on composites? Yeah, no. Composites was actually one of my, uh, my favourite uh, topics. As anyone with half a brain in aviation knows, it's the way of the future. So um, the, uh, the composites component I really, really enjoyed and actually as part of uh, my ongoing training here at Aviation Australia about six, eight weeks ago, I just completed an advanced composites course as well. So where to from here? You're, um, you're working with um, Aviation Australia and what do you see coming up uh, next with them and beyond? Yeah, sure. Well, um, going through the process towards the end of uh, the end of my course, uh, you know, getting out and uh, interviewing with uh, prospective employers and things like that. Aviation Australia uh, opened up uh, a structures apprenticeship through through the organisation, so I applied for that. The benefits to me as the apprentice here uh, far exceed anything that I could possibly uh, get out there in, in industry, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, I've, as I said to you previously, I've, I've already done an advanced composites course, plus I've also taken on a, a mechanical apprenticeship as well. So I'm, I'm doing a dual trade, which yep. uh, I wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to do that out in industry. You know, 90% of the time it's, you know, uh, you pick one. Well, I've got the, I've got the luxury and, and the support that I can do both structures and mechanical subjects and uh, become and be certified in uh, both of those uh, streams. That sounds great. And uh, in addition to the engineering training, of course, you do flight attendant training. That's always an area of training that's fascinated me because, you know, a lot of people, uh, they, they hop on the plane and they see the flight attendant there bringing them drinks and they don't really appreciate that there's a lot more that goes into uh, flight attendant training. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what you do there? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You sort of you see them as the, the waitress or the waiter on the plane, but their, their primary role is actually safety. And um, I was a bit the same as you guys. Before I got here, I sort of had an understanding of what they did, but it's not until you see the amount of training training they do in safety and emergency procedures and security and all those kind of things that you really get appreciation for, for the job. We started training the, in the flight attendant market in around 2006 and it's quite a significant facility. We have a lot of equipment in there. We have um, simulators for cabins. So we have three of those. We have a wide body simulator, a narrow body simulator and a, a regional aircraft sized simulator and they're amazing pieces of kit where they can um, they can practice decompressions and smoke and fire training and evacuations operating the doors but also the customer service aspect so doing the the service of, of customers in the in the cabin and practicing uh, everything from uh, serving of hot food in a in a cabin environment to a decompression where the masks all come out and there's smoke and 
dark and noise and, and having to evacuate the cabin uh, as they do quite rapidly. So after they've got this um, this training that you've provided, how much additional training do they need once they're picked up by an airline? Is it is it just the specifics to that airline's operations or a specific aircraft type, or do you tailor the FA training so that you can actually specialise into a into a fitting into one airline? In the uh, cabin crew area, there's actually no prerequisite training that's required before you can be employed by an airline as a flight attendant. So we have a lot of a lot of people use the facility from the airlines regularly. So we've we've regularly got quite Qantas, Jetstar, Virgin here using our facilities to do their recurrent training and as well as at their initial training of, uh, of flight attendants. But we also have our own course which we, uh, we conduct which is a certificate two course in flight operations and it's not actually a prerequisite by CASA for, to become a flight attendant but it covers off all the different aspects of training that a flight attendant would normally go through once they actually join the airline. It covers things like responsible service of alcohol, dangerous goods, so the CASA dangerous goods course, first aid, some of the security aspects which the flight attendants have to use, even things like we, we get the guide dogs to come in and the students actually uh, interact with visually impaired people and learn how to uh, interact with the guide dogs. But the really important thing, which and the bit that everyone really loves, is getting out on the slides, getting in the pool and the rafts, <laughs> doing the smoke and fire evacuations. These very quiet little students who first turn up on day one suddenly turn into the loud, aggressive flight attendants doing their safety roles of evacuating aircraft, getting people out the doors as quickly as possible. And so we do all that training and they get a certificate and, and then they're highly valued by the airline. So we finally get a very good take up of our graduates into the airlines. Yeah, because half the training's already done. Yeah, exactly. And, and I guess we haven't really ended up in a situation where the airlines don't do their own training on our graduates. They still like to run through the full Virgin Australia cabin crew course, for instance. They don't actually get a, a reduced training time in the airlines, but they've already done it before. They're very successful. And I don't think we've ever had anyone who's actually failed uh, those courses once they, once they start with the airlines. And it's a full-time course, uh, Andrew, and it's eight weeks, is that right? Well, we actually have three ways you can do the course. So the traditional way we have done it is the eight-week uh, come to Aviation Australia for eight weeks and we teach you everything on site. You get to use all the facilities. You get your free iPad and you'll leave here with, like I said before, you'll, you'll leave with your certificate too. You'll have done your responsible service of alcohol, your first aid and your dangerous goods courses and you're ready to go into the airline. And that's the way we've traditionally done it. But more recently, we've, we've started a part-time variant of the same course. You end up with the same result. It just takes 12 weeks and you do two nights a week and every second Saturday and, and that's been fairly popular as well. And even more popular I think now is we have an online version where you can actually do all the theory of the course up front in your own time and then you just come and enrol for a reduced two-week practical course where you still get to do all the fun things like jump in the pools and paddle around in the rafts and go down the slides and do all the emergency training and, uh, and stuff we've talked about previously. It's obviously a very global market. Do you find many of your graduates are heading overseas? For example, we know a lot of the Middle Eastern carriers these days are hiring a lot of Australian uh, pilots and cabin crew. Do you find a lot of people heading over that way? Yeah, we do. We've had, um, we've had quite good experience with the, the Middle Eastern airlines and, and they know our product and um, as an example, Emirates like to do all their Brisbane um, recruitment activities in our facilities. So our students get to interact with airlines like Emirates and Jetstar and, and Virgin all through their training. And yeah, if they're, if, they're, uh, if they're lucky enough, they can get picked up at one of those recruitment days as well. How many courses would you run in a year? In, in some years, we run um, one every month. 
Uh, depends on demand. We varied a little bit. I think this year we're planning on about eight over the next 12 months, but most months we start a course. That's the full-time course, but we've always got a, the online option happening and the part-time course, we usually do two or three per year. It really is a unique uh, career path for somebody, isn't it? I mean, to get out and see the world, as they say. I mean, you wouldn't find a better opportunity, and I guess to be paid to do it, um, what, what more could you ask for? Yeah, it's, it's a lifestyle job, that's for sure. You know, you get to travel the world, or, or at least the country, and uh, <laughs> some people are, are really attracted to it. I guess a lot of people may not be, but uh, if, if you like the thought of uh, travelling around the world and, and seeing unique places and um, being paid to do it, it's probably not a bad uh, bad lifestyle, is it? One way that uh, people can find out about the flight attendant training uh, and the engineering training and a lot, lot of other aviation careers besides is uh, at the upcoming expo. So uh, Jennifer and uh, Steve, perhaps uh, tell us about the expo and uh, what we would expect to find there. Absolutely, Steve. Aviation Australia is very proud to host the event um, on behalf of the entire aviation industry within Australia. So the event um, taking place in August this year and the 25th on the Saturday for everyone, it's actually Australia's largest and essentially only aviation careers expo. So really dedicated to careers, training um, and employment because as you know, I guess aviation is not one of those topics that generally comes to people's minds or people think about when they think about you know future pathways. So we're really putting that out into the general public people looking at a career change and just, you know, graduates and students looking at an um, alternative path. And this is not the – you said it's the biggest one. It's not the first one you've had, though, either. I believe this is the – No, this is our 12th annual event. So each year getting getting a little bit bigger and more exciting. So all the staff are on board, and we've got some really great exhibitors this year coming on board as well. We've also got some highlights. So we have, um, as you can see on the dedicated website, we've got the static aircraft display, which Steve will um, speak a little bit more about. There's also a seminar program. We have the opportunity for everyone to come in with free entry, and we try and make it as entertaining and interactive for people as possible. So it's not just a, you know, to come ar- come away with some some le- leaflets and brochures about what you want to do, but it's really a, a family friendly day out for everyone. Free simulators, food and drink there, barbecue on um, behalf of Care Flight. Come out, check the aircrafts out, and really engulf themselves in the. Uh, real aviation feel for the day. Okay, let's talk about some of the, you said there's some seminars there. Sponsors basically take up the opportunity to speak to people on a one-on-one forum and also in a group forum. So those discussions will be about pathways that they can take, um, employment opportunities available and also training that can happen here in Brisbane, um, abroad or in Australia as general. The best thing to do, Steve, closer to date is to check the website for a full outline for who will be speaking, what companies, what exhibitors will be there and what they can expect on the day. Uh, I'm just looking down the list here, Jennifer, of uh, some of the uh, people that will be there, not only the airlines, of course, but uh, people such as Air Services Australia and a lot of other businesses, maintenance organisations, care flights, chopper line. So the whole point is, and we try to make this point on our show a lot, that it's not just about being a pilot, is it? There's so many other career opportunities that you can take uh, within aviation, and particularly here in Australia. No, absolutely, Steve. And I think on behalf of hosting the Expo, um, on behalf of the Australian industry, we really try to get people from, from a range. So aircraft maintenance and engineering, cabin crew, ground crew, um, even sort of looking at management and airports and different varieties of employment that they can take within the industry, not necessarily a pilot, although that is very important as well. And we do have Chopperline and a few other um, exhibitors very excited about talking about um, some pathways within the pilot industry. But as, as mentioned, you know, we will have Griffith University there, Oxford um, Aviation Academy, 
Chopper Lion. You know, we have people from New Zealand, so CTC Aviation Training, people from Gold Coast, New South Wales. So people are, companies are really coming far and wide for the expo and we're all getting really excited about it. Now, as you mentioned, Steve's putting together a static display. Uh, Steve, what kind of aircraft have you got out there? I have to describe it as eclectic. <laughs> Basically, what, I, what I've tried to do in putting the static aircraft display together is uh, bring together all the eras of aviation. So, uh, you know, something for all generations of aviation enthusiasts. So uh, we, have, uh, we have a tiger moth in attendance and uh, I'm uh, looking uh, all the way up to um, uh, composite, uh, the Cirrus aircraft are also in attendance, as well as uh, A320. Uh, we have a warbird uh, club that are uh, bringing down 10 of their warbirds from uh, Toowoomba. Oh, nice. So uh, I'm pretty uh, excited about that to see uh, some of those old planes. And I've already actually uh, gone up there and uh, inspected them and have a look at them. I'm so looking forward to seeing them on the deck here as part of the expo. Is that some of uh, the old Guido Zaccoli collection and so on? Absolutely, yes. Uh, yeah, the uh, uh, Guido's um, uh, Harvard uh, will be here, as well as um, uh, a couple of Trojans uh, from uh, friends of Guido's. I've been to Toowoomba a couple of times when I lived in Brisbane and uh, yeah. Yeah, great collection out there. Yeah, no, it, it is. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, we've got uh, what I can only describe as probably the most immaculate windshield I've ever seen coming <laughs> down as well. Uh, that sounds great. That sounds like you're right. It's definitely an eclectic mix from airliners yeah. to, well, as some people call, an aircraft made from the original composite material, wood. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> we haven't forgot our rotary brothers. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a few choppers coming in. Uh, we have uh, V2 helicopters uh, coming in from uh, Archerfield uh, with uh, their Hughes and their uh, Squirrel. So, uh, again, I, as I said, I've, uh, I've gone out and I've uh, spoken uh, with V2 and uh, had a look at the air, uh, the airframes and uh, it's sleek, let's just say. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I very much appreciate the curves. As well as uh, the uh, the local aircraft from uh, southeast Queensland, we've also got um, some uh, aircraft that are uh, currently being uh, uh, manufactured here in Brisbane by uh, uh, Australian Aerospace also coming in as okay. well. So uh, they'll be on static display on the day as well. Would that be aircraft like the helicopters like the Tiger and the uh, the MRH-90 or is it uh, It would be. <laughs> Excellent. So we're yet to conf- we're yet to confirm the Tiger, but uh, MRH definitely. We've actually uh, also got uh, Care Flights uh, Chopper will be here as well on the day. So uh, that that being our uh, our charity, Care Flight is uh, in attendance on that day. We're having the barbecue for them uh, to raise some money. So uh, everyone, get your uh, get your wallets out and uh, buy a snag for charity. Fantastic. Cool. And I noticed another link there on your website. I don't know how much uh, you know about what they're doing, but I noticed there's a link there for the Aviation High at there mm. at there at Clayfield. They've got an open day at the same time. So can you tell us a bit about Abs- that? Absolutely. So Aviation High, um, they're within the Gateway um, School Project with Aviation. They will actually be having their open day at the same time as the expo. So we really encourage people to, um, especially obviously for the younger for the younger crowds, to pop over to Aviation High, check out the school, their facilities, their hangar they actually have at the school, um, and then in conjunction pop over and check out the expo and some future pathways as well from there. 
Well, that, that sounds like an absolutely fantastic experience. And, uh, folks, if uh, people want to know more about it, they can check out the uh, website in general, which is aviationaustralia.aero, to find out about everything that they do there. And, of course, aviationaustralia.aero slash expo to find out specifically about the uh, the Careers Expo. Once again, that's up there at Brisbane. Now, you're just located just off the uh, Brisbane Airport grounds. Is that right, guys? We are, yeah. We're at the southern end of the, the runway. And uh, while you're here, you'll see aircraft either taking off or landing on the main runway almost overhead. Uh, fantastic. So, I great day to immerse yourself in aviation and uh, hopefully a lot of our younger listeners and uh, perhaps a few uh, that are maybe not quite so young but uh, you know as Steve has done has taken a different career path this is the place to do it Brisbane Airport Saturday 25th of August 2012 Andrew Rankin Steve McCann and Jennifer Palmer thanks so much for telling us all about it yeah thanks guys for the opportunity to talk well I'm here at uh Lake Kalalarain near Mildura flying hot air balloons and wouldn't you not I've run into Mr Alan Joyce. Alan welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you Grant enjoying myself. Excellent. Alan what are you doing here? I'm here at the moment to uh, to learn to fly a hot air balloon Grant. Okay. Mate I've noticed that uh, you don't quite have that Irish brogue today. Is that something you put on for the cameras? Are you Mr Alan Joyce from Qantas? I am Mr Alan Joyce. Unfortunately I'm not that Mr Alan Joyce. Okay, so you're not the Alan Joyce of Qantas, you're the Alan Joyce from where? I'm the Alan Joyce from uh, in New South Wales, not the Alan Joyce from Ireland uh, running Qantas, no. Okay. Do you call, get any hassles or stirs or anything like that by having the same name? Uh, yes, yeah we do. I do get um, run into it from time to time. Uh, my work colleagues um, found this article uh, on the front page of the newspaper that said Alan Joyce has lost contact with Australia and so they promptly put it up around the around the workplace. Uh, we were in on, uh, in America uh, boarding a plane to come home from America, a Qantas plane at the time, the day that uh, Alan Joyce decided that he wasn't going to pay his, his ground staff and his workers the money that they asked for. And I promptly handed my passport over to the checking people and I did get some glares and I did get questioned and (laughs) it was very quickly I put the hands up hey hey I'm on your side guys (laughs) I'm not that I'm not that fella (laughs) so um, what's your background in aviation I don't have a background in aviation uh, apart from crewing for hot air balloons we've been doing that for 10 years in Canberra we have some friends who are pilot international pilots with hot air balloons and I went to Albuquerque hot air balloon festival last year and got back from there went to Canberra balloon festival this year and thought no that's it that's what I want to do I want to pilot a hot air balloon private or are you going to go commercial let me get through the private first (laughs) okay um yeah private first get my hours up and then um, I would like to go for a commercial qualification that will give me more options and my wife and I have a a long-term plan to to fly hopefully overseas so uh, a commercial is is on the cards. Now uh, you said you've flown Qantas a few times so uh, I take are you a regular frequent flyer with Qantas? I wouldn't say regular. We flew to LA and home from LA on, on Qantas and quite enjoyed the service. People were fantastic and the plane was, was fantastic. So yeah, I have no problems. We'd fly with them again. What would you do differently at Qantas if you were the uh, Alan Joyce at the head of Qantas? <laughs> if I was the Alan Joyce. Look, staff are your main priority. You've really got to look after your people. It's no good having being um, bottom line orientated and all that sort of stuff. You've got to look after your people. And in being a, an Australian icon, as, as Qantas is, you need to keep your, I believe you need to keep your staff and your base here in, in the country. He's, uh, they're outsourcing uh, servicing, they're outsourcing food, they're outsourcing everything. Bring it back, bring it home, get it done here. Yes, it'll cost a little bit more. 
but I'm sure that, uh, that the Australian public, the travelling public, will pay that extra money for an Australian product that we can all be proud of. Thanks, Alan. No worries at all. Thanks very much. Well, there we go, Grant. Who would have thunk it? You finally got to talk to Alan Joyce. After more than 90 episodes it's taken us, but we've got there. You spoke to Alan Joyce. Good work, mate. Oh, thanks, mate. I think I uh, did pretty well to jump on that uh, opportunity there when it was presented to me. Yeah, so, you know, poor old Alan Joyce. Of uh, Where was he? From Mildura or somewhere? Uh, no, more like Canberra area. New South Wales, Canberra. Oh, okay. Which uh, he must cop it all the time. Yeah, it seems like he does. There was much rolling of eyes when I said, oh, dude, do you get any hassles? Oh, yes, he says. <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, geez. Should change his name to John Borghetti. Everybody seems to like him. Yeah, well, he's the flavour of the month for the moment. Yeah, he certainly is. Well, just looking back on some of those segments there, I'll tell you what, Grant, I'm really happy with that news about medicals. And uh, I'll tell you what, I think I'll be going off to get mine rather shortly. And, uh, you know, this push towards simplifying stuff, I hope it continues. Not that we want to see safety compromised, but uh, I think uh, some of these uh, older processes, you know, could be reviewed and perhaps improved. Yeah, I do agree that that's an important part of uh, what should be going on in terms of street streamlining and giving better bang for buck and all that. But, you know, the one thing that really, really annoys me about this whole class two medical revamp and everything, it came one day after I had completed my class two medical with my designated aviation medical examiner, paid all the money to CASA and gone through all the hoops to get it. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's no good, Granted, How much did it cost? Uh, with everything all added together easily a couple of hundred I'd say oh, but yeah. uh, you know it did look I do need to maintain a class 2 medical uh, when I get to commercial balloon pilot uh, commercial balloon pilot requires class 2 medical but if uh, all I was doing was taking people out for a fixed wing um, flight two people light aircraft going out in VFR conditions mate you could just get away with not requiring one. And honestly, as a balloon pilot, we're already there anyhow. Private balloon pilots, you don't need a full class two medical or even class three. You can just do, you know, um, here I am, I am self-assessed and okay. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, an interesting world. But, mate, I now have my class two for the next two years. And hopefully by then I will have done enough flying to be pretty close to getting my commercial. That's an interesting point, Grant. How many privately owned balloons are there flying around? We, we know down here in Melbourne, I mean, you know, you look up in the skyline most mornings and we see hot air balloons doing commercial ops. Ah, but, but uh, they're commercial, yeah. Yeah, but uh, private ops, uh, I don't know. Is there many people doing that? Mate, uh, there's a few hundred of us in Australia and, uh, yeah, I'd say there's um, less than 20 uh, balloons in Victoria, I think. But we're not always out here all the time. A lot of them are parked for a while. I know the um, that the statistics on the ballooning federation front, we, we don't generate a lot of major accidents. We may get a few column inches here and there when people go, oh, what's that one doing landing on a driveway? Well, you know, that's called a precautionary landing. And when it's done right, no problem at all. There's not that many of us compared to the um, RAOs or other uh, parachutists or other forms of sport aviation. But uh, we do pretty well. Also, I want to mention uh, Peter Johnson there. Fantastic. Isn't it great to have correspondents all around the globe, mate? And uh, I'll tell you what, I think he got a little bit wet judging by some of the other reports I've heard on other shows that he's done. <laughs> I don't think the uh, British summer has been particularly dry. Oh, I don't know. The rain was lovely and warm. But, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought it was great that uh, not only do we have correspondents around the world who are able to put together packages for us, but uh, those correspondents around the world are interviewing some of the same folks we've been doing back here. In fact, Mark McNamara, who we've uh, chatted to here in Australia and over at Oshkosh last year. And there he is over at Farnborough. Uh, well done, Mark. And uh, congratulations to you and the rest of the team at Gipsero for uh, helping to take the GA8 and the uh, thoughts of the GA10 
around the world, that's great. I'll tell you what, it's a wonder uh, Mark McNamara was standing upright for that interview because I spoke to him the day that he was leaving Australia to go and I'll tell you what, mate, he wasn't taking the most direct flight. He was actually going via the US, so uh, sort of going the back way. (laughs) Poor Mark. Yeah, well, you know, he's he's done pretty well and um, he's he's really out there flying the flag for uh, Gips Aero and uh, the various aircraft, so congratulations, Mark. Well done. And uh, one thing Peter doesn't mention there at the end of his segment, uh, you know, being rather uh, humble there, of course, is that Peter has started his own podcast in uh, conjunction with uh, Global Aviation Resource and the Royal uh, Aeronautical Society, and that's called uh, Aviation Extended. And uh, you can find that at aviation-extended.co.uk. And, uh, yeah, no leading E there, as Max Flight says, on Extended. And we'll put yeah. a link in the show notes. And uh, fantastic podcast. And uh, episode three came out recently. Some fantastic interviews there, the People's Mosquito and... And they've made a trip out there to the Royal Naval Air Station at Yeovilton for their air day. So, uh, you know, some great interviews there. And uh, I don't think it was raining quite as much as it was at Farnborough. <laughs> no, no, I think it was much better weather then. And, uh, yeah, well done to the guys. Uh, Aviation Extended, excellent work. And great to have yet another podcast on the airwaves. Honestly, mate, I think the more the better. Uh, we all help each other to get better as we're going along. And the winners really are the audience. There's way more content to listen to. And everyone's coming up with some really good stuff. I'm I'm loving listening to all these different podcasts really enjoying it and i'll tell you one other thing i like to do grant and that is go to air shows in fact uh, i think we're going to one very soon ah, well soon as in a month and a bit away that would be soon as in the one at narrow mine absolutely in fact uh, ozfly that's uh, a-u-s-f-l-y you can find that at ozfly.com.au 13th to the 16th of september 2012 australia's private and uh, sport aviators together under the one sky and uh, this is being run uh, by the uh, sport aviation association the AAA in conjunction with AOPA and the Australian Warbirds Association and uh, we'll be going up there with the uh, the mobile studio and uh, some of our other gear which we'll talk about in upcoming episodes but uh, yeah uh, certainly if you're going to be uh, up around that area in New South Wales uh, you know in mid-September then we'd certainly encourage you to get along once again uh, check it out at ausfly ausfly.com.au they've got a Facebook page running as well and uh, we really hope that we can see as many of our listeners uh, get up there it should be good weather that time of year yeah no, it sounds like it's going to be pretty good I'm really looking forward to it because uh, some of the um, balloonatics are going to be there. There's going to be uh, gyros. There's going to be home builds. There's going to be everything up there all the way through to warbirds and uh, some big old GA planes. I'm really looking forward to checking it out, mate. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, Gary Murphy uh, just posted a question on our Facebook page today uh, asking us if we'd ever thought about approaching some organisers to do a podcast from an air show. Uh, well, yes, uh, I just sort of said, well, funny you should mention that. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Gary, there's your details, mate. We are going to Ozfly and uh, we certainly hope that we can meet you up there too, mate. Yeah, looking forward to meeting all sorts of people up there. So, uh, Narrow Mine, September, be there. Absolutely. You know, one of the people I'd really like to meet in person, you know, on a more personal basis is, uh, you know, the guy that rides up and down my street every now and again delivering the mail. Especially very, very late at night. How does he do that? Unbelievable. Oh, amazing dude. The most reliable postman in Australia, I say. <laughs> I think so. I hope you look after that, man. Actual paper email, Grant. Actual paper oh email. My- God. Yes, playing crazy down under at gmail.com. And we've got one here from Greg Levisher talking about the topic of uh, aircraft ownership. Greg's uh, a long-time listener to the show, and uh, we know he's uh, sent us in in some emails here and there over the time and participated in some of our other forums. But uh, he's just saying, uh, hi, guys, just listen to episode 90, another great one. Well, thanks, mate. He says he's got a few points here now. It's quite a detailed email, but I'll just go through some points here. He says he's got a few comments about buying a plane. He says, I'll start with the LSA-based ones, or RAOs. You have to be small. Well, that counts 
that's me at Grant. Oh, I don't know. Baz and I both got into as a Vector Sports star. Admittedly, the tanks weren't full. <laughs> he says uh, he knows two guys of around 90 to 100 kilos who went to Avalon last year and climbed into a skycatcher. He said they were looking to see if it would work uh, in the flying organisation we were involved in uh, at the time. They calculated that there was no way they could fly in it legally. He said one of them owns a 152 Aerobat and they could go in that and fly around with legal reserves, not so for the skycatcher. And, uh, you know, let's face it, Grant, uh, neither of us are uh, small people and particularly not me. And <laughs> Uh, you know, that's that's probably my one thing with climbing into an LSA aircraft. I suppose I could lose some more weight, but, you know, hey, why don't they just make bigger aircraft, I say? Well, it's that whole uh, weight limit thing, and uh, as has been reported uh, a couple of times beforehand, uh, the head of CASA has been uh, quoted as saying that uh, he's not going to let anyone get the Cessna 152 into RAO's weight limits. Well, yeah. I tell you what, Grant, uh, one of the other uh, points he makes a bit further down in this email, which was actually in line with what Ben Morgan was saying in that interview, uh, he says that Bankstown, uh, one organisation, had six technams, and he says they've not survived as 162 replacements as they were expected to do. He said they simply can't handle the work, and they've been gone after only four or five years. Uh, he said, I doubt whether that organisation uh, will ever recover from the uh, purchase cost for those aircraft. So that's that's interesting. It's a little bit early days to say, I think, for these carbon fibre aircraft, these, these lightweight LSD. Say aircraft in in my view they have not been around that long uh, well, compared to the workhorses like the uh, you know the Tomahawk and the 152. I mean those those airframes have been around for a very very long time and they they just seem to keep going. I think a big part of it is also just how stable and sturdy those aircraft are. I, I've seen a number of LSAs that really aren't quite designed for the student pilot market. I mean we all recall what we've done as student pilots in fixed wing. You know how many times we've slammed it sideways into the ground trying to deal with a crosswind things like that. And and yeah, a lot of them aren't really designed for the uh, the ab initio student. They're pretty good for a low hour pilot or beyond, but for that ab initio student, round the patch, slam it into the ground again and again and again, a number of them aren't. But that said, there are some LSAs that are very, very sturdy. So it, it, as with anything with aircraft, figure out what you're trying to do with it and buy accordingly and look for aircraft that match what you're doing. So you know, if it's a, if it's going to be a beginner's student aircraft, find a rugged aircraft. Or in my case, just find any aircraft. You know, uh, one of my colleagues at work who listens to this show pulled me up uh, just the other night and said, have you bought one? Have you bought one? I said, no, <laughs> I don't know what, what on earth I was thinking. Greg sort of sums up here further down the email. Grant, he says that he sometimes uh, thought along the same lines as I was, i.e. buying one and putting it online at a flying school somewhere. He said, but uh, having been in, involved in the other side of running aircraft, and seeing all the unexpected costs, he says he thinks if he ever buys one, it'll only be himself yeah. and uh, close friends who'll ever fly it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm starting to think uh, that uh, I'd be in the same boat, uh, you know, if I win Powerball this weekend. Now, you may recall a few episodes back that uh, we were talking about voicemails uh, as a way of uh, contacting the program uh, for people who would be interested in doing that. And uh, there's many ways you can do that. You can record it into your iPhone or, or other portable device, uh, or you can record it straight into your computer. But a, a very convenient service that we're using right now is that one called SpeakPipe. And uh, you can find that on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash under. Somebody who's done just that is our good friend, Stephen Pam. Hi there, this is lapsed student RA pilot extraordinaire and a longtime friend of the podcast, Stephen Pam. I'm halfway through listening to the discussion on aircraft ownership in episode 90 while I look after some important 
domestic duties. I just wanted to compliment you on an excellent job and also thank Anthony Crichton-Brown and Ben Morgan for participating and for sharing their expertise. Uh, I reckon that sort of information is exactly what we need to take some of the mystery and voodoo out of uh, aircraft ownership. It's very encouraging. Now, uh, I'd better go and finish folding this washing so I can get back to my BAK studies. See ya. Well, thanks for sending that in, Stephen. And I tell you what, you shouldn't be folding washing. Grant, didn't we give him about 3,000 video projects to edit for us? Yeah, well, yes, we did give him lots of uh, video projects, but I think that She Who Must Be Obeyed has probably uh, outranked us there. But uh, definitely, I think once he's done it, he should definitely get back to his BAK studies, his basic aeronautical knowledge. Come on, Stephen, Pam, you've got to get with the picture and join the rest of us in terms of flying. All right, that's everything we have for you on this edition of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening and as always we certainly hope you enjoyed it Grant there was a lot of information a lot of uh, varied segments in that show and uh, I really enjoyed putting this one together I hope our audience enjoyed it too yeah so thanks heaps to uh, Baz Sheffers for joining us on a number of the uh, interviews and discussions we've had here and also for Anthony Crichton Brown for joining us on his computer chat we'll be back soon with episode 92 of Playing Crazy Down Under but until then I tell you what if you're planning on uh, making an assault on your local air show hmm, just remember this it's what's down under that counts folks You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, Anthony Crichton-Brown and Baz Sheffers. You can follow us on Twitter at PCDU. And for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow and any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Let's try that again, shall we? Take two. Right, I finished typing. <laughs> right. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plain Crazy Down Under, episode ninety-one of the program. Get into it, eh? Okay. Right to go, Grant. I'm good. I'll click on the right tab here. I've got twenty. <laughs> You've asked me the hard question, man. I don't have those numbers right at my hands, uh, but just uh, you know, make something up. I do, Mate, it, I, I do I it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> True. He's not, not shy about coming forward, is he? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, what can I say? Thank God there's only one of me. <laughs> <laughs> Legend. I didn't know you had that one recorded on your soundboard. I do now. I do now, yes. I also have this one. Uh, there will be no carbon tax under oh. the government I lead. Yeah, interesting stuff. You know, Grant, uh, maybe one of these days I should go for a, uh, a hot air balloon flight. Well, you know, we do have the ones that are able to carry 10 passengers. I'm sure we can squeeze oh, you thanks, on one of them. Thanks a lot, mate. You, what do you think I'm that heavy? Well, you know, I just know you like your space. <laughs> so diplomatic, mate. You know, you really should put in for that job at the UN. <laughs>